Hello everybody in Kaushambi circle. These are the first set of voice notes for the month of December. As you know, the theme of the month is relationships in class society and in socialism. So the big idea behind this month was that when, first of all, what do we mean when we say relationships? So we are not like focused on romantic and sexual relationships, which are the, the, the sort of relationships which capitalist society focuses the most on. We will talk about that, but we also want to address all other kinds of relationships. Uh, for example, we do want to talk a lot about friendship, one of those relationships which gets kind of erased in capitalist society because it's not as useful, useful for uh, the accumulation of capital or for capitalist exploitation. Um, so there are three, read, three readings which we are going to discuss for the meeting tomorrow on 13th. Uh, the three readings, the first reading is The Reactionary Mind by Corey Robin. And we are only going to be discussing the first chapter of this book, although the whole book is very interesting. And if you have some time, you should read it. It's not a very large book. So we'll be discussing the first chapter of The Reactionary Mind, The Private Life of Parth, Joining me today are two people of the circle who have had very interesting conversations about these readings. Um, we have uh, Ansan who would talk about the private life of power and we have Shreya who would talk about uh, the, the Jacobin piece, which is actually reviewing a book, uh, which, is on, uh, which is on romantic and sexual life of women in the Eastern Bloc before it collapsed. And I, I will be talking about this book, uh, which is on friendship, a book by an anthropologist, which is on friendship. So Ansan, how do you want to start to talk about the private life of power? And could you like give us a quick overview of what, what is yeah, this I'm, about? The central principle in the chapter, which is very, very fascinating, can be explained through a story. And the story in very brief on is, um, is about John Adams, the American president, one of the early American presidents, I think the second or the third one. So as you know, America is founded on, as an experiment on liberal democracy. And so Adams, continuing the tradition of Washington, people like that, he goes around the country talking about democracy and uh, how the common person should have a say in how they're governed, stuff like that. Of course, democracy doesn't ex uh, extend to slaves, but he talks about how all land-owning white people should have a say in how they're governed, etc. So this goes on for some time, and eventually his long-suffering wife tells him, hey, how about extending the principles of democracy to inside the house? And at this point, John Adams is like, oh, wait a minute, he's totally rattled. And he says, um, no matter how democratic the state is, society should remain a federation of private dominions where husbands rule over wives, masters govern over apprentices, and basically all the oppressed people should know their place. So this really is the central thesis of the chapter, which is that conservatism is deeply personal to conservatives in the sense that regardless of the abstract ideals of the state and what happens in parliament and stuff like that, 
what matters to people the chapter claims is what happens in the private dominion your relationships with your uh, uh, with your family your relationships with people that work around you and so on and in that sense conservatism is a deeply visceral reaction it is very personal that really is the central thesis of the book so so what you are saying is that and what this chapter talks about through many instances is that the very idea of uh, people who are socially under you becoming your equals is a personal insult to conservatives it's not just that these people will get power or they will become uh, richer or have say in the government etc etc it's that them being your equal somehow is a deeply personal offense to you that is at the crux of conservatism as an ideology across culture this is what the chapter right. is saying right. am, am i correct the other thing the other thing that the book also says is conservatism as with most political ideologies has different flavors and some conservatives are actually with okay with social welfare and the founder of the thing for a called edmund burke and he develops his theory as a reaction to uh, to the french revolution which we've covered um, in the history caucus in great detail so burke is actually okay with some of the people who perform the labor enjoying fruits of some of of some of that labor but he's got a huge problem with sharing power and essentially he says that social order would collapse if uh, the people that are doing the work and he regards them as uncouth and barbarians and so on if they are given a share of the power and they get to make the decisions about how they should be governed about how their society should be uh, run and so on uh, the chapter also talks about um, essentially the point of socialism according to a chap called jay cohen who's a marxist is equality is extension of freedom from the few to the many another way of saying this is equality means a rotation uh, in the seat of power uh, th- that's this very interesting but other conservative or some conservatives the fellow called lawrence mead that features in the chapter he is actually a welfareist he's fine with um, with uh, people receiving a little bit of social welfare and a little bit of care from the state but somewhat intriguingly he argues that the welfare recipient must be made less free in certain senses than more free from you say that conservatism is actually a, a part of liberalism and yes. i was reminded of that when you when 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 yeah, i read this yeah because uh, because you know like when it comes to welfare it's not that conservatives are opposed to welfare or you know uh, the poor being fed etc there is this word in hindi which uh, is like something which i've always associated with conservatives and their world view and in the very particular indian context of conservatism where it's like deeply patriarchal and deeply casteist so this word is called okat it trans as in okat mero ha okat mero it's not a word mm. which you translate well into english it's status or something like that 
you should know your place i suppose you should know your place exactly and that is at the heart of the conservative world view that while a conservative could be persuaded towards welfare and while they could be even persuaded towards you know a very theoretical idea of liberty or towards equality in elections etc their major problem is social equality or equality in the intimate space yeah that's that- true i i i know fathers for instance who are um, who are okay with let's say voting rights for everyone and a little bit of welfare etc but they have a visceral reaction towards anything they perceive as feminism are duniya feminist ban jayegi to mere ghar mein bhi aagi i don't want to deal with my wife and daughters wanting a say in how the house is run or they deciding for themselves how they want to dress or who they want to marry who they want to date what kind of sexual relations they should enjoy etc yeah there is this fear fear of the conservative of mere ghar mein kya hoga if all this stuff is going on yeah i think that's super interesting and i think that that fear that aversion to granting the full humanity of a person to someone is ultimately very self serving right because if you were to recognize the social equality of your wife or your daughter you would have to stop instrumentalizing them at home the fear comes from the idea that you were terrible to other people who were below you on the ladder now if everybody can do things and has agency then what will they do to you if they sort of do the same things to you you did to them and i think that is where yeah. the there is a related concept too as well which is the fear that other people will realize that they can run their lives without you so there is a particularly revealing um, incident that is recalled in the chapter um uh, there is a there is a general strike in seattle in america in 1919 and the workers uh, start to run seattle and they are so organized the factory workers that they also take over the functions of the police in some sense and the mayor of seattle says the problem is not that these workers are violent or disruptive or any of that it is that they are independent and self organizing and eventually everyone will discover that workers and wives and so on are capable of running affairs by themselves without any um, any intervention the the description of the plantations and the sort of this idea that you have to constantly guide the life of your social inferiors and that is fundamentally it becomes tied to your uh tied to your agency tied to your identity that is the central crux of conservatism shreya i would like your comments on this particular point especially because i remember that when you did the gender month uh, what struck me when we talked about sex workers and the sort of repression they face not just from the state but these conservative busy bodies who uh, span nation so this whole idea that you know we will go and liberate people against their will if necessary kicking and screaming if necessary by force if necessary if we have to hurt them 
or imprison them that also is fine because we get to choose what is decent and moral for society so uh, sir i really want you to talk a bit about that because that i think is a very fundamentally conservative way of thinking it's actually one of the things that struck me while reading the jacobin piece as well because as you say anupam one of the recurring themes in gender month was this idea that there's you know been this unholy alliance between certain um strands of feminism and the conservative movement and they've been able to join together with the shared mission of you know preserving certain institutions foremost among them the nuclear family structure and the sort of ordained role of women to keep socially reproducing labor and stuff like that and in that mission they attack sex workers they attack um folks who are of gender and sexual minorities and so on and so forth and yeah i <laughs> i think the the aim of these people is to is to dehumanize people like sex workers right it, like it is to dehumanize lgbtq people because that's really how you conservatives are those who are comfortable with the privilege of what exists and it's not so much that they have an agenda of dehumanization it's that they're violently motivated to preserve status quo in a sense it's an anti politics of sort where the conservative essentially can say that i am not even doing anything i just want to keep what order exists because in in their mind order and status quo are synonymous the 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 current thing is synonymous so uh, in that uh, there is this passage from the reactionary mind where are you referring to the fox hunting passage yeah the fox hunting passage where some conservative yeah. says that what is difference between conservatism and all other ideologies like communism socialism democracy fascism labor party whatever is that the conservative actually doesn't want anything the conservative just wants things to be as they are it's just that things as they are are incredibly bad for most people and the conservative is completely capable of doing violence of any degree to preserve things as they are uh, shreya would you mind talking a bit more about the jacobin piece the and the central argument it makes yeah sure so this piece is basically a review of a book by an ethnographer so also like the author of your piece anupam uh this person kristen gotsi i believe her name is she specializes in the study of eastern european countries post communist countries and stuff and it's a book called why women have better sex under socialism so pretty provocative talk about a clickbaity title exactly how to tell which one's more provocative sex or socialism in that title um and the the argument it advances is basically that even in deeply patriarchal cultures such as the ones you observed in these sort of erstwhile soviet states um they were still able to make pretty significant strides towards gender equality because of a range of conditions 
such as socialist uh, childcare, such as an emphasis on women's education, um, other policies that sort of increase women's workforce participation, increase their economic independence, and by extension meant that, you know, they were less dependent on abusive relationships, they could exit them, they were less dependent on the sort of whims of their employers, they had more power in the workplace, and so on and so forth. Um, and sort of that combined with feminist propaganda sort of explains how uh, when you look at hard data on the sexual satisfaction rates uh, between women who are living in the Eastern Bloc and women who are living in the Western Bloc. So this was uh, after World War II, the annexation of Germany, where, where basically the Soviets controlled Eastern Germany and implemented all of these progressive policies that I was talking about a moment ago and Western Germany, which was very capitalist and on top of that pretty religious as well. Um, these policies somewhat explain why these women in the Eastern Bloc had significantly higher sexual satisfaction rates. So that's broadly what the book is about. She's an expert on these countries. So, you know, she deep dives into them in, in the book. Um, why I found the review and why I found this article in general fascinating is that look i mean it, like i think it makes or it implies certain sweeping statements about the relationship between women's sexual satisfaction and certain political economic factors and you know a lot of the recommendations that the author advances um are currently implemented in many democratic socialist nations right and it's not like women that are doing great on all counts. Um, but I think why this piece is really interesting is because the, the reviewer, not the author, is getting at the idea that she crystallizes in the later sections, that sex and more broadly relationships just become much more fulfilling when you're able to recognize the full humanity of the other person, when you stop instrumentalizing people. And capitalism is just really great at instrumentalizing people, which is why, like, this idea of, you know, women have fewer orgasms under capitalism or whatever, that's just one of, like, many, many, many symptoms of why relationships in general just suck. So, like, one of the ideas is what I just sort of went over right now, which is this idea that there's an absence of the discussion of pleasure in, in mainstream political discourse. And part of that is because of this allyship between right-wing feminists and conservatives who are sort of co-opting um, that, that discourse. And what's interesting over here is actually that, and, and this is like, again, related to this idea that um, it's very much in their interest to preserve the nuclear family structure. It's very much in their interest to make sure that women remain in the family structure and therefore disallow conversation on pleasure and so on. Like some recent data actually shows that uh, when you compare male-female relationships and same-sex relationships, there's like more equitable distribution of like care burdens and stuff among gay couples, right? So that's one of the many outcomes I think um, that these sort of um, people who are opposed to this idea of pleasure, of women's pleasure, and all of these conservative elements, like that's one of the ideas that they're trying to oppose. Um, and yeah, I mean, she goes into a lot of detail about Soviets and various strands of 
feminist movements and, and how they discuss pleasure. The second thing I briefly wanted to touch upon, because I think it ties really well, actually, with the Colin Tide reading that we have uh, next week, is this thing where she, you know, says that it's not like the Soviets were great towards women all around, right? Like, they were occupying Eastern Germany and just like broad trigger warning here for rape, but um, they were raping uh, women in East Germany. There was obviously high rates of domestic violence and abuse back home, despite all of these progressive advances, right? And I think also here, like, and this comes back to this idea of how do we really get to like, recognizing the full humanity of someone if we're instrumentalizing them. So at that time, um, you also had in East Germany like forced labor reparations and stuff like that, right? And I think this idea is really important that like you cannot selectively humanize a group of people. Like that's just never going to work. Either you recognize the humanity of everyone or like no one at all because like the fact that these Soviets could like have incredibly progressive policies for their women at home, but still like beat them and abuse it, abuse them, and then still rape these East German women, like all of these things go hand in hand. And this ties to like a really good example in the Colin Dye piece as well, where she's like, in the feudal society, you had these knights who would compose like these beautiful, lovely poems about their fairest fair aristocratic ladies right and how they would like totally idealize them pedestalize them and so on and then like they went back home and then they would like call on like this um peasant woman and just like take take her for their pleasure like and all of these things coexist and by design go hand in hand because you can't really idealize one group of uh, people without dehumanizing the other so those are some of the things I found interesting about the Jacobin piece. A historical point to be noted here that uh, when Kolontai and like the sort of Marxist feminists of her time did these things, the Russian Socialist Republic had a lot of, for its time, uh, progressive ideas and laws, but a lot of those laws were uh, sort of recanted and reversed in the Stalin administration. So like in the initial decade of the Russian so uh, Soviet Republic, uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, like gay rights, for example, became a thing, like uh, at least decriminalization became a thing. But immediately after Stalin got power, uh, there were massive reversals in these areas. And uh, uh, that had somewhat to do with the Orthodox Church again becoming uh, important to the to the then government, and uh, essentially a lot of social conservative stuff was reimposed, and and a lot of violence happened in that sense. I mentioned this because it's kind of tragic. Like you had people who wrote good theory, and state policies were done, which were really progressive for their times. But then immediately due to political, ex whether it was political exigencies or the <clears throat> personal conservatisms of the, uh, like the Soviet administration led by Stalin, um, a lot of those early uh, like advances were reversed. You have to like be very careful about uh, 
like state power and you know even if it's a it's a left wing government or something and, uh, like to make certain that you don't suffer reverses because of capitulations like these uh, i mean the 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 jacobin piece and the underlying book talk about women had better relationships under soviet under the soviet union and so on but but 10 years ago i met a colleague in america who actually had a russian mail order bride that is absolutely the worst form of instrumentalizing a, a romantic relationship um, slavery like slavery yeah. and yeah, uh, human trafficking rather yes. right yes 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 so it it reminded me how far um in the descent of the the people has has happened yeah well the after. less talked about the post soviet russia the better it's basically a gangster capitalist state yes. so it's uh, kind of hilarious when like a uh, lot of like contemporary people do not understand the gravity of like how like how much capitalism hurt that country once it was reintroduced but anyway uh, at this point i would like to talk a bit about the book friendship development ecology evolution of a relationship uh, the the book is by this uh, anthropologist who works at the arizona state university he studies friendship and it's a very interesting book because it's not written by a political theoretician it's not written by a marxist but the whole book explores and investigates this phenomenon of friendship and presents a lot of statistical data presents a lot of observations which i think would be interesting for us as socialists to go through and i hope that this provokes discussions in the meeting and in the circle and i hope everybody reads this book it looks a bit big but it's not it looks like 400 pages it's actually 200 pages the rest are like indices and stuff so the book begins with the introduction to charles darwin's memoirs about uh john henslow who was darwin's mentor and fellow naturalist at cambridge and this friendship lasted from 1828 to 1861 and greatly impacted darwin's career his ideas his even even him being on the hms beagle was because this friend helped him to to get there because darwin's career was faltering at that point and yet despite being such a great thinker of his time on evolution and things like that darwin was so confounded by this phenomena of friendship because you know it's not very easy to say that friendship is like you know a way for natural selection or is a way to protect genetic material or whatever that uh, darwin doesn't really theorize about friendship at all despite all his theorizing about so much about how Uh, you know evolution happens etc and even now with all the data we have it's becoming more and more clear that friends are not important in the high stakes game of survival and reproduction at least in the shallow fashion we think about it at least in the tit for tat way we think about a lot of our uh, relationships 
and also what is surprising is that despite so many cultures there is some phenomenon like friendship in most of them when we say friendship we mean a long term relationship of mutual affection and support so the author goes into this developmental ecological and evolutionary exploration of friendship he goes into what have philosophers talked about friendship and he says that you know uh, there is abundant empirical evidence that a human friends don't help each other in a tit for tat manner and also that you know friends do not uh, how should i say expect or perform reciprocity like uh, they don't like you know you can ask your friend for a great favor and they would do it and you can just treat them to a dinner or something from a material point of view it is not reciprocal at all and yet friends do this all the time and then the question arises that why do people do friendship then and what is it like about friendships that leads to such strange ways of so the what the author proposes is that friendship is kind of a mutual aid in uncertain contexts that friendship solves a computational task in an uncertain environment the computational task of survival when you have so many people in a community and so many variables which can be exchanged and in such a scenario a sort of a greedy tit for tat or a retributive way of dealing with other human beings simply does not make sense and that is how friendship became a thing which which evolved with us as a species and despite like the and you know so the first chapter I'll, i'll talk a bit about this book i mean it's a whole book and i can't of course explain this in in a voice note but i'll talk a bit about it so the first chapter goes into how do you define friendship and it quickly identifies that uh, friendship has a lot to do with intention and just focusing on overt behavior is not enough so it gives this example that in papua new guinea uh friends often greet each other like this they would say that i should like to eat your intestines and then their friend responds yes i should too like to eat your intestines and, <laughs> uh, yeah i hope that our audience finds this funny <laughs> like you know for a western observer or even an indian observer this like cannibalistic affection you know might be a bit shocking but this is the thing that while the idea of friendship transcends culture and practically exists in every single human culture the way it's expressed overtly differs and yet there is this ubiquity of an ideal of mutual sharing and uh, and you know the older theories of friendship the author proves how they are all wrong so first is this idea of reciprocity that humans make friends because they want you know reciprocal altruism or something but actually tests have been done that friends are less likely to perform reciprocity than strangers like you may do a big thing for a friend they will not do a big thing for you because that's not how friendships work like both of you don't expect things in return uh but uh with strangers you may do a big thing uh, for uh, right, for a stranger and yeah. and they will they will respond because you know payoffs and like 
that's how society works and and a lot of very interesting uh, studies are given in this chapter so the second theory was that okay fine friends are not expecting immediate reciprocity what they're expecting is a long running ledger like a balance of favors and this mm. also does not work tests have been done that people will keep doing things for their friends without expecting anything like for decades like it it simply there is no there is no balance of favor happening and the third one was this idea that uh, there is this thing called the shadow of the future that people do good things towards their friend because they will meet them again and they don't want to do a bad thing and you know get humiliated by meeting their friend and it's like embarrassment so like they will do the correct thing every single time because there is the future the threat of the future but this is also not true they have done like these tests with anonymity and all and people will do good things for their friends even if they have knowledge that you know their friend doesn't know that it's them doing the good thing and will never know that it's them doing the good thing and what was hilarious to me is that we all know this stuff like you don't have to do statistical experiments to know that you would do good things for your friend without them getting to know about it but it's like good to know that you know people have done the experiments and and it's not. so one recurring theme throughout this book is that throughout cultures people talk very highly about friendships and the author is always asking that is it all hot air is it that people say these nice things that i will die for my friend and i'll do this for my friend that for my friend and that they actually don't do it but it's not true like experiments throughout culture show that friendship is fundamentally a part of human like you know it's so funny right that like uh, right wing economists all are keep talking about human nature and how it's like human nature to be selfish and all <laughs> it's not really true and a lot of these experiments are done on like like in the west like in among in us students and all and even they like act in these ways which is very funny and then the author laments that you know there is such a theoretical bias against friendship what what that means is that in the english language the word for any relationship which is talk the most is friendship people talk about their friends in english literature more than they talk of their mother father wife husband child whatever and it's not written in the book but i think it's this is actually true for a lot of languages and despite this being the case if you look at the anthropological research on friendship there is something called the anthropology anthropology's love affair with kinship so the author talks about this data set called the hraf human relations area file which has like data on thousands of cultures across the world and hundreds of relations which have been uh, surveyed and like like almost 3 lakh 50000 pages of surveys and yet the author says there are at least 12 paragraphs about kinship for every one paragraph about friendship in all this observed data and it's not because there are certain cultures which don't have friendship or you know in fact the author measures that out of these thousands of cultures there are 400 cultures in this data set which have a lot of data and among those 4 400 cultures the author could like five just five cultures which don't like obsess over friendship and that's because these five cultures 
are extremely uh, collectivist and they avoid friendship because they think like individual friendship may be a threat to the overall collectivist culture there like just five cultures the author could find which has this problem otherwise friendship seems to be this almost universal phenomenon by the way uh, good trivia point here one of those five cultures uh, which is so collectivist that it actively uh, prohibits friendship is an indian culture called uh, muria gond in north india i was not aware that there is such a culture in india which actively prohibits friendship but but even in english i mean they say blood should be thicker than water yeah so the author says that you know a lot of cultures say these things like there is similar saying in thailand in various cultures that you know kinship is stronger than friendship but then you do the experiments and turns out that you know people would do lot of stuff for their friends as perhaps not as much as their immediate next of kin but they would do a lot of stuff and the author like has a lot of experiments which prove that and uh, like the author goes into you know that despite like cultures being culturally so different you know in some cultures friends are not supposed to talk a lot with each other in some cultures they talk a lot with each other uh so for example and you know it's not also just because cultures are individualistic or collectivist because like indian culture is supposed to be collectivist but in india friends would share like really embarrassing details with each other whereas uh, uh chinese culture which is collectivist friends would not do that and western cult like american culture which is individualist friends would share really embarrassing details with each other but the author found that there are certain very material aspects of friendship which are common throughout all these cultures so aspects like mutual aid in time of need a positive feeling when you are with your friend demonstrating positive feeling by non reciprocating gift giving without even being asked like these are things which whether you are a farmer in tanzania or a member of a indigenous community in papua new guinea or somebody in india or somebody in uk these behaviors are in common and this is very interesting that uh, you know mutual aid is so natural to human cultures and and apparently has always been in fact the author goes into like you know pieces of literature like people talking about that yes blood is important but friendship is also as important to me like from literature from like the 16th century or something so very interesting book and i hope everybody reads it because just 200 pages apparently there is this i think it's in mozambique but maybe i'm wrong so the story goes that if you borrow three coconuts from your neighbor you may not ever return three coconuts you can either return four or you can return two in other words you can never square the ledger but the point the book is making is a much larger and much more powerful point sure. which is that like most cultures don't have these rules the sort of rule you just said and despite that most cultures have a very strongly non instrumentalist view of friendship which the author has measured via experiments which other people have measured via experiments that it's not just a rhetorical thing that friendship 
is not give and take it's a thing which most cultures have followed and are following in our reality which is a very powerful thing that we actually have demonstrable evidence that uh, friendship is a thing which is not based on this uh, give and take individualistic model of uh, how societies should work and i think that is extremely important for socialists to look at because capitalism is trying so hard to tell you otherwise and because that essentially what socialism is then is the extension of a society of friends to the entire society and and that is a deeply attractive idea towards me anyway people should read this this book and have their ideas about this and we should have a conversation about this book yes people please read reactionary mind it's absolutely brilliant of all the books that we've read in the circle circle so far this year i put it in the top 3 very accessible uh, and it's a brilliant elucidation of what conservatism is and isn't i am really excited about uh this month's reading list and in particular this friendship book because i think like as a circle we just really need to discuss the ways in which like how exact so we know that capitalism atomizes us we know that it discourages friendships but like why does it do that and why is this idea that a society of friends is makes like all of these big capitalist men super nervous like why does it make them so nervous i think is a really um important discussion and something we should have okay on that note uh, everybody please do these readings and see you in tomorrow's meeting thank you shreya thank you ansan that's right and and we will eat your intestines <laughs> uh, yeah yeah i, I also want to eat your intestines